If you have a, a gospel, please turn, a, a copy of the Bible with you, please turn to our gospel reading, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. And notice how it begins. Notice verse 1 of our gospel reading. And Jesus called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Now, if you read the Bible like a novel, which is the way you're supposed to read it, if you read it from left to right, that's the way we read novels, and not like an encyclopedia where you just kind of dip in and, you know, you read encyclopedias, you don't start at the beginning if you want to know what zebra is about, right? You just jump to the spot. You shouldn't read the Bible that way because the Bible's a story. And stories, the meaning of any individual scene is shaped by what's going up to that moment, okay? So if you're reading the Bible like a novel, a lot, and you're getting its plot deep into your bones, then when you get to Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, you recognize that it is a repeat of Genesis chapter 1. You recognize that there are these echoes. You see, at the beginning of the Bible, we have God, the creator, and he's creating humans in Genesis chapter one out of the nothingness of non-being. He creates them and he calls them to himself and he gives them his own image and likeness and he gives them the authoritative power to act on his behalf in the world. Genesis chapter one, verse 26, God creates these humans calls him to himself, gives him his image, gives him his authoritative power to rule over, Genesis 1, 26, the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then God sends them out to do the work they were created to do. Now, what we see here is that with God, it's the same as with us. You can only give what you have. In the beginning, God has all this power. He's been, if you notice our stained glass, he's been creating and he's been filling and he's been having dominion. He's got that. And so then he gives it. He gives it to these humans. Why? Because by right, God who created all things has power over all things. Now, here in Matthew chapter 10, we have Jesus, God himself in the flesh, and in the great work of redemption, he's repeating the same pattern as the work of creation. He calls the disciples to himself out of the nothingness of their sin. And he gives them authoritative power over every disease and every affliction. And then he sends them out to share in his own nature as creator and ruler and restorer and healer. Now, this is a uniqueness to Christianity because in the stories of other religions, the gods create humans in order to make the weariness of existence more bearable for the God of that religion. But the God of Israel is different. He's a self-giving God. This God, Yahweh, he creates humans in order to give humans something precious. 
a share in his own nature as the creator and the ruler and the restorer and the healer. Now, when you compare Genesis 1 to Matthew 10, when you compare the original job God gave to humans to the job that Jesus gives to humans in the restoration, you notice that in the beginning, there's no talk of disease. Why? Because there's no disease. So they're not being sent out to deal with disease. In the beginning, there's no disease. There's no infirmities. There's no unclean spirits that needed to be healed or cast out. But in Matthew chapter 10, the great work of humans begins with restoration. It begins by aiming at the sick state of the human body and spirit because humans are no longer whole. They, not like they were in the beginning. Now people are divided, not just with each other, but within their own selves and their own bodies are turning against them. They're possessed by other spirits than the spirit of God. They're broken in flesh and soul. And so the great work of salvation, like the great work of creation, it's comprehensive. It goes into everything, but unlike the work of creation, it's restorative because some bad stuff has happened. So here in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus calls the 12 disciples to himself, and then he passes on to them his own power and his own authority that only belongs to himself, it's as if the marvelous act of creation, something as equally astonishing and marvelous is happening again. And in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 2, we're told the names of the 12 apostles. And it goes through them. And the list begins with Peter. And it ends with Judas. It begins with a traitor. So, I mean, this is bizarre, right? I mean, if you were God and you had all this power, is this the group that you would be passing on that power to? This traitor? The first of them all is a traitor who's repentant. It ends with a traitor who's unrepentant. And here we have in Matthew chapter 10, the kernel, the core, the seed, the beginning of the church. This is the first visible extension of the body of Jesus on earth. And as the church, these apostles, they do what Jesus has been doing Jesus has been healing. Jesus has been casting out demons. Jesus has been raising the dead. Now they do what he does. They live by his own pattern of life. They think as he thinks. They love as he loves. So notice three movements. In verse 1, Matthew 10 verse 1, Jesus calls the apostles to himself. And then he gives them his own authority to save and to heal. And then in verse 5, he sent them out to preach. Verse 7, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 8, to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, and cast out demons. And like I said, up until this point in Matthew's gospel, only Jesus has been preaching the kingdom. Only Jesus has healed the sick, raised the dead, cleansed lepers, and cast out demons. And so how bizarre is it? that these insignificant, traitorous, 
Galilean fishermen and tax collectors have been empowered with the power and the presence of the king of the ages, the creator of all things. Is that how you would have done it? I mean, it's just incredible. And notice where Jesus sends them. This is the second half of verse 5. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, after Jesus' resurrection, if you've read further into the gospel, at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus reverses this, right? He sends them out to every nation, go into all the nations, baptizing all the nations and teaching them to obey all things I've commanded. But before that moment, before the resurrection, before this wider mission of the church itself, Israel must first hear the message and be given a chance to repent before it's too late. You see, Jesus has not come to destroy the Old Testament, to destroy his relationship with Israel. He's come to fulfill it. Israel's God, Yahweh, is indeed the creator God who loves the world, loves the world so much, and intends to save it and to call all of the nations to himself. But the way he will do that is by calling Israel, fulfilling his promises to Israel. God is a faithful God. As high as heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithfulness. And he will not turn his back on his covenant, his promise to Israel. The time for the Gentiles will come soon enough. But for now, every effort has to be made to tell the chosen people that their great moment, the fulfillment of their dreams has at last arrived. And so the fact remains that we Gentiles are saved at root because God was faithful to his promises to Israel and we're included in Israel by this extension of his mercy. And so then Jesus gives his followers in verse 8 these very specific instructions. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying Give without pay, acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for the laborer deserves his food. This is interesting. They are commanded to confront every destructive force gnawing at human beings, to be healers and to be restorers. Why? Because that God is the creator of everything and the restorer not only of your soul, but of your body too. The work of redemption is as wide as the work of creation. In the beginning, God created everything. In Jesus, God came to heal everything. Not just your soul, but also your body, also creation, also your relationship with others, also art and government and education and business and finance and fashion and every square inch of this universe, God came to heal it. And the the apostles get to do this. Now, this is like, you got the power, right? This is a lot of power. But notice, they are not supposed to do this with swagger. Right? They're not supposed to march around with this ego and pride. Why? Because they didn't earn this. It's not like they studied and passed the test. This is a lousy group of dudes. They just got it free. 
They just happened to be there one day when Jesus was walking by. I was like, come on, you little chump, follow me. (laughs) Freely you've been given. They get this free of charge. So they can't walk around like they're better than everybody else. The gift of God's life, Jesus Christ himself was given without charge. So they, they can't use that as like some badge of I'm better than you. So the disciples, this kernel of the church, this seed of the church, this first movement of the church, they must avoid in any suggestion that they're corrupt, that they're on the make that they're out for money. They mustn't even take cash or provision with them or carry the sort of belt that beggars normally have. They must expect that those who hear and receive their message will will feed them. But the gospel itself, this all-important message, this good news that the kingdom of God is here, it is free. Don't you wish the church would remember that today? As I read this, my heart breaks. This week, reflecting on the way Jesus set the church up to be, reflecting on the corruption in the lives of so many Christian leaders and churches and institutions today. The sexual abuse of minors carried out in the Catholic Church. The high-profile meltdowns of celebrity evangelical pastors. The widespread sexual misconduct of ministers and churches and church leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention. Liberal and mainline churches seem to have fully adopted the spirit of the age, falling into the captivity of the Democratic Party, rightfully paying attention to issues of justice, but largely leaving aside the historic and biblical affirmations of the faith. Like the divinity of Jesus, the bodily resurrection, the authority of the Bible. And and there seems to be among liberal, progressive, mainline churches, a willingness to compromise morality for the sake of acceptance. An unwillingness to teach the historic biblical sexual ethic or um, the divinity of Jesus or these things. Because in the current climate, it's just so implausible and unpopular. And then on the other hand, (laughs) there's the conservative churches. They have their problems too. I mean, for example, in the past, it was the conservative churches who originally supported slavery. Slavery would not have happened in America if the conservative churches in America had stood against it. Conservative churches were silent during the Jim Crow era. They largely rejected the civil rights movement of the time. And they have been the slowest to integrate their schools and their seminaries. And today, many white evangelical churches are responding to the overreach of progressivism by largely denying structural injustice and systemic racism. Too many conservative churches still have a race problem. Not to mention the exaggerated versions of hypermasculinity and femininity, negative attitudes toward immigrants and the poor, and a willingness to compromise morality, not for acceptance, but for influence. Falling into the captivity, not of the Democratic Party, but the conservative church has fallen into the captivity of the Republican Party. 
And so whether it's the liberal-leaning, mainline, progressive churches stressing justice, but largely ignoring the historic Christian teachings, or if it's the conservative-leaning, evangelical churches stressing righteousness and the historic Christian doctrine, but remaining indifferent or even hostile to the work of justice, the church in America has become corrupted in too many of its places. It too often looks like churches, whatever their stripe, right or left, are not really about God and the Bible, but they're about politics and power. And neither of these options look like Matthew chapter 10 when he's sending these cats out. No wonder the number of people in the United States who say they have no religious preference has dramatically risen. In 1980, only 5% of the American population said it had no religious preference. 5%. 10 years later, 1990, 10%. It had doubled. Eight years later, it had gone to 25%. And by the end of 2021, nearly 30% of the U.S. adults have, have, have no Religious affiliation. This is, this is huge. And Gen Z, those who are in their early 20s and under, are even more secular. Among Gen Z right now in America, the latest polls are indicating that 21% identifies atheist or agnostic. The highest percentage of atheist or agnostics in America ever up to this moment was 7%. And in that generation alone, it's 21%. We are living in an unprecedented moment in U.S. history. Some have called it the great decline. The decline of religion and Christianity. When we look at the church that Jesus was starting here in Matthew chapter 10, we see a church that unites righteousness and justice. And if we let God's word and God's spirit direct us as a church, we too will unite righteousness and justice. We will not fit with the left on abortion and sexual ethics. And we will not fit with the right on their approach to race and justice. We will be a church that embraces the global and multi-ethnic character of Christianity with an emphasis on racial equality and justice, a deep concern for the weak and poor and for economic justice. Did you know that it is only in all the world the only conservative church that refuses to address the dark side of capitalism is in America. In the rest of the world, it are, it are the, it's the conservative Christians that are pointing out the broken parts of capitalism. What we're going through is an accident of history. It's not innate to the gospel itself. If we would let the spirit of God lead us and the word of God shape us, we will be a church that has a spirit of bridge building and peacemaking and forgiveness and non-retaliation. We will be pro-life and pro-family. We will have a sexual countercultural counterculture in which sexual intimacy mirrors the, the nature of our union with Christ. And so it is only for within heterosexual marriage. We will escape 
if we let the Spirit of God lead us and the Word of God shape us, we will escape from the political captivity of both the left and the right. We will be a church committed to prayer and to the presence of love moving toward our secular neighbors. Now notice how our passage of Scripture ends. Verse 11, Jesus tells his apostles, Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet. And when you leave that house or town, truly I say to you, It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. It's it's just incredible that the arrival of the apostles in a town and their reception or not determines if Jesus comes to the town or not. Jesus follows in the wake of the church. That's why it's so catastrophic when the church is corrupted. Give them your peace. What is their peace? Their peace is Jesus Christ. He called them to himself. They have Jesus. And so when the apostles move into the town with their their ministries, they are the emissaries. They are the forerunners. And God set this up in an incredible way so that they go on his behalf. And if people receive them, they get Jesus. And if they reject the apostles, they reject Jesus. And so he says, before he ever references Sodom and Gomorrah in the end explicitly, he references Sodom and Gomorrah dramatically in the drama. Often God is revealed in the drama, the shape of the plot, as much as he is in the content of the doctrine. So they go to a town and they're supposed to look for a lot. Somebody sitting at the gate, leaning forward on the edge of their chair, waiting for the emissaries of God. Now, what Lot did with his daughters, very, very bad. We're not like, like God dealt with him on that. We were, right. But this idea that Lot's heart was wide open to the emissaries of Jesus and that he was sitting at the gate of the town, looking, waiting, and he invites them into his home. This is what the apostles are told to do. Find the lot. Find the one whose heart is open, who's waiting for you, who will receive you. And then it's as if you're not only going to move into their home, but you get the feeling that Jesus is talking about moving into their heart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. That's exactly what happened to Lot's house. The house was worthy. Again, what happened with the daughters, it's like so much of life. It's really complicated. That's really bad. Or what he offered to do with the daughters. But this other part. And what we're seeing here is that the way God set up his kingdom is that his kingdom is carried in the heart of his emissaries. And that he follows in the wake of that. And the readiness of an individual or a household to receive the kingdom of Jesus is measured by their ability to receive the peace that the emissaries bring. Now, here's the deal, Gen Z. 
You've been dealt such a raw hand. The corruption of the church, one of the dark side effects is that you're so skeptical you can't receive with an open heart the emissaries of the church. You're so aware of the abuse of authority that you want this to be done in some other way, but it's not. I don't know why God set it up this way, but I know that as you open your heart to the preachers of the gospel, Jesus comes in the wake. And I know that there's a lot of corruption out there, but there's no other way. And this, is, this means our, our, our nation is in such a bad place. We're in such a bad moment. Well, this is so tricky, so difficult. There are plenty of churches in America that have betrayed their birthright and they've failed to be faithful to the marching orders of our Lord. And and there's so many ministers, there's so many pastors and clergy who are supposed to take up the mantle of the apostles and take up the mantle of these founders of the church and, and they're supposed to live into that role and we're supposed to open our hearts to them and receive them. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. God has chosen to advance his kingdom through a list of people that began with traitors and ended with traitors. He's chosen to give his authority and his power to the church. And our first calling as a church has to be to abide in Jesus. And we've got to do that. And too many churches have failed to do that. And yet the church, the local church, is still the body of Christ. And it still moves forward through its emissaries. And a fundamental way that we receive Jesus is we receive the church. And if you disconnect yourself from the church, you will not have ongoing experiences of the transforming grace of Jesus. I wish he had set it up another way. There'd be way less on the line. But he did. Because he set it up in the restoration the same way he set it up in the creation. Which was he made something in his image and then gave it his power and authority and said, go out there. It's scandalous, isn't it? That God tied his kingdom to the church and to the minister's. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was not homosexuality. That story is not about homosexuality. It's about violent gang rape, regardless of the gender. But the deepest sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, the sin that people in Matthew chapter 10 were vulnerable to, is a failure of hospitality to the emissaries of the gospels, of the gospel. That's what seals doom and destruction. Let us in Lent use these disciplines of fasting and prayer and Bible reading and worship and repentance to get ourselves to the gateway of our lives where we're leaning forward and we're looking for Jesus and we're opening our hearts up to Jesus so that when Jesus comes along, we can invite him all the way in and he can give us 
his peace. And let us labor to be the kind of church that answers the call first to be with Jesus and to receive from Jesus and to be sent out into our city to have a genuine missionary encounter with our city. Let's not aim to escape from our city or to fight our city, but to engage our city in order to win many people to Jesus Christ, to grow and to flourish in the faith. Let's pray.